Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 13th through Saturday, the 15th, feature Ricardo Muti, joined by principal piccolo of the orchestra, Jennifer Gunn, and bass trombone player with the orchestra, Charles Vernon. The program includes Vivaldi's Piccolo Concerto in C Major, Ken Bencho's Concerto in Three Movements for Piccolo and Orchestra, and Beethoven's Symphony No. 2. After intermission, the world premiere of James Stevenson's Bass Trombone Concerto, featuring the orchestra's Charles Vernon and George Gershwin's An American in Paris. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on James Stevenson's Bass Trombone Concerto, a work lasting about 23 minutes. The Chicago Symphony was the first orchestra James Stevenson ever heard. Raised in Lockport, southwest of the city, his parents brought him to Orchestra Hall when he was eight or nine years old. He still remembers how comfortable the seats were, and he recalls being knocked out by the sound of the orchestra. Above all, he noticed how prominent the trumpet part was. That became the instrument he fell in love with. After he started studying trumpet around the age of 12, he picked up every Chicago symphony recording he could find. He wanted to hear how Adolph Bud Herseth, Chicago's legendary principal trumpet, played pictures at an exhibition under Fritz Reiner, or under Raphael Kubelik, or Sir George Schulte. He compared the orchestra's Bruckner recordings under Schulte, more direct brass sound, and Barenboim, more organ-like. He savored the classic Reiner records from the 50s, Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, The Fairy's Kiss by Stravinsky. He sought out obscure works such as Hovhannes's Mysterious Mountain, as well as the popular blockbusters, Mahler's Symphonies, Strauss's Tone Poems. All these pieces are brass heavy, he said recently, because I was going to be a trumpet player forever, or so I thought, so I needed to learn how to play by listening to the best. Over the next years, he continued to listen to the Chicago Symphony on the radio while he was in high school at Interlochen, he spent one summer at Tanglewood, and back in Orchestra Hall when he came home on break from the New England Conservatory of Music, where he earned a degree in trumpet performance. By then, Stevenson was fascinated with the whole orchestra. He had moved beyond zeroing in on the sound of the orchestra's brass to listen to Frank Miller, the principal cello, or Ray Still, principal oboe. Stevenson did become a professional trumpet player. He spent 17 seasons with the Naples, Florida Philharmonic, a position he landed immediately after graduating from the New England Conservatory. At the age of 25, when he signed up for a summer composing class at Northwestern University, he had started doing arrangements, but he had never composed a single original note. It was the beginning of a new love. In 2007, Stevenson decided to give up performing in order to concentrate on writing music full-time. He and his wife, who also played with the Naples Orchestra and their four young children, moved back to the Chicago area. Stevenson came late to composition, and as a result, he is largely self-taught. Writing music quickly became his full-time profession, and it has turned out to be an unexpectedly satisfying form of self-expression. Though I try not to take myself too seriously, he wrote three years ago in an article for New Music Box, I take music very seriously. I reveal much more about myself in a piece of music than I would ever do in person. Today, he says simply, music to me is my life. It is completely my passion. 
As a performer, Stevenson had developed a wide circle of colleagues who would not only encourage his early work but wanted new concertos to play. By now, he has written solo works, sonatas, and concertos for nearly every instrument in the orchestra that he knows from sitting among its ranks. These include three concertos for his own instrument, the trumpet, all of them composed for Ryan Anthony, principal trumpet of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, whom he has known since they were teenagers. Sounds Awakened, a recent French horn concerto, was written for Gail Williams, who was a member of the Chicago Symphony for 25 years. She stepped down in 1998 and and, as it turned out, was on stage the day Stevenson heard his first concert in Orchestra Hall. There is nothing better than writing a solo feature for a good friend, he says. You can really take in their sound, their personality, and try to recreate it in a musical work where they will be inspired to shine. Next on Stevenson's agenda, concertos for piano and for guitar, and another for horn. His Symphony No. 3, Visions, his largest work to date, received its first performance in April. The new bass trombone concerto for Charles Vernon that is being premiered this week carries on this tradition of composing for friends and, in this case, for the orchestra Stevenson knows best. And here are words by James Stevenson himself on his bass trombone concerto. When Charlie Vernon first told me in November 2015 that I would be writing a new bass trombone concerto for him, he highlighted two things. One, that it be the most profound, beautiful, and lasting musical event to be played on the bass trombone. Thanks, Charlie, I'll do my best. And two, that it would be a great story, like a book you can't stop reading. As I thought about these requirements, I began to think about something I consider pretty profound, life itself. Perhaps this is because at the time of the world premiere, I will be 50 years old when one starts thinking about such heavy subjects, but suffice it to say that it seemed a good time to write something that heeded the significance of life. In thinking about life, I kept coming back to its rhythms and its ups and downs. This idea spurred my initial inspiration, and I began to feel a pulse that would inspire the entire work. A pulse, of course, fits nicely into both worlds, life and music. I couple this early on with a rising note motif of A, B, C, which serendipitously couples nicely with Charlie's idea of this piece being like the reading of a book. And so the piece evolves, with the main ABC motif generally revealed in rising fashion in Chapter 1 and in falling fashion in Chapter 2, ups and downs. The first movement is that of a bass trombone coming of age. It enters the world boldly, but then goes through moments of confusion, nervousness, development, and finally confidence and fun, the latter with jazz references in honor of one of Charlie's favorite mediums, as the movement ends with the protagonist at its height. The concerto has traveled from A minor to A major. Life is good. The second movement, Chapter 2, picks up right where the first left off. It is audacious music, bringing with pomposity and with resolute, puffed chest. As it continues, the motif reverses and lyrical music rides on top of contrapuntal orchestral scoring as if wisdom has taken the place of hustling angst. The music builds, pulses, and grows and portrays heart-wrenching life moments before finally beginning to subside to a period of much reflection and thought. 
There is a direct segue, no pause, into the epilogue, now back in A minor, which for a while remains almost still. But life is reaffirmed, and the music continues to pulse, ending rapturously in A major, with the bass trombone still at the top of its game. I grew up going to Chicago Symphony concerts as a child, and then as a young trumpeter, I often dreamt of someday performing on the stage at Symphony Center in Chicago. Even though that dream won't happen, I am thrilled to have a world premiere of my music with my favorite orchestra on that very stage and under the direction of maestro Riccardo Muti. I have Charlie Vernon to thank for this, and I can only hope that my music will serve the bass trombone and music world well and come as close as possible to Charlie's vision of a profound, beautiful, and lasting creation. Words by James Stevenson and program notes by Philip Husher on Stevenson's Bass Trombone Concerto. And now on to George Gershwin's An American in Paris, a work lasting about 17 minutes. When George Gershwin arrived in Paris in March 1928, he was as famous as any living musician. Even in Europe, his best songs, such as The Man I Love, Someone to Watch Over Me, and Fascinating Rhythm, were whistled on the street. And Rhapsody in Blue was the most talked about composition in a study that has always loved music. Gershwin's music is still so popular that it's easy to overlook his classical roots. His first musical memory was of an automatic piano in a penny arcade on 125th Street playing Anton Rubinstein's Melody in F, one of those rare pieces that had become a popular classic, giving Gershwin the idea at an early age that serious and commercial music could be one and the same. As a teenager, Gershwin attended recitals by celebrity soloists such as Joseph Levine and Ephraim Zimbalist. He played piano in the Beethoven Society Orchestra at Public School 63, and he studied music theory as well as piano. Even after George quit school at 15 to become probably the youngest piano pounder ever employed in Tin Pan Alley, he didn't forget his greater ambitions. In the early 20s, while Gershwin was turning out a steady stream of hits and making the kind of money that is unheard of in the classical music business, he was more determined than ever to write serious music that was equally popular. The historic premiere of Rhapsody in Blue at New York's Aeolian Theater in 1924 announced to the music world that Gershwin was a far more complex and ambitious musician than a mere songwriter. And just to confuse matters, that same year, Gershwin produced some of his finest songs, including Fascinating Rhythm. During the mid-1920s, while he enjoyed the life of a rich celebrity, collecting modern art and moving his family out of their dreary apartment into a five-story townhouse on the Upper West Side, Gershwin began to compose a piano concerto, three piano preludes, and this tone poem, a love song to Paris, while still maintaining his roles as pianist, tunesmith, and conductor. In January 1928, Gershwin accepted an invitation to visit friends in Paris. Recognizing the need for a change from the frenetic New York scene, he currently had two hit shows, Funny Face and Rosalie, running simultaneously, Gershwin immediately started thinking about a rhapsodic ballet, which he quickly titled An American in Paris. By the time he and his brother Ira boarded a steamer for Europe on March 9th, George had already sketched the piece in versions for one and two pianos. A dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker, Gershwin was dazzled by this great cosmopolitan city. 
Looking down from the top of the Eiffel Tower, he was positively dizzy. To Gershwin, Paris had always been a city of music, and now, in his mind, it was Ravel's city. These two famous, successful composers had just met at Ravel's 53rd birthday party the previous month in New York City. Ravel specifically asked that Gershwin be invited. They hit it off at once. Gershwin played the piano until 4 a.m., and Ravel stayed to the very end. Another night, the two went off to hear jazz in Harlem. In Paris, Gershwin continued to work on the score of his new piece, and he spent one entire afternoon shopping the auto supply stores on the Avenue de la Grande Armée in search of the ideal car horns for the traffic scene he had in mind. He took four horns home with him for the New York premiere. At the time, Gershwin told a reporter that an American in Paris was written very freely and is the most modern music I've yet attempted. It's certainly Gershwin's most accomplished and ambitious orchestral work to date. For the first time, Gershwin's trademark jazzy rhythms, bluesy harmonies, and unforgettable melodies are all woven into a big, sophisticated work of symphonic dimensions. By 1928, Gershwin had developed a fine ear for orchestral color and a sense of cinematic panorama. Despite his claim that he hadn't written program music, the play-by-play -play scenario printed in the score and often quoted is by Deems Taylor, not Gershwin, the work is unforgettably descriptive. From its opening walking music, think Gene Kelly, Hollywood 1951, to the car-honking traffic jam, Gershwin did identify the Americans' spasm of homesickness after too many drinks in a street cafe, but neither he nor Taylor managed to explain the hot Caribbean rhythm midway through. An American in Paris was a hit at its New York premiere just months after Gershwin came home, and inevitably, it was soon loved in Paris, too. Program notes by Philip Husher on George Gershwin's An American in Paris. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.